0: stumbled onto The Sleeping Giant. Let's broaden our minds.
1: Hello and welcome back to The Sleeping Giant podcast. I am your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte, and I'd like to say thank you for joining me once more. And also, happy Halloween, y'all. I don't know which is worse, y'all, the state of affairs in this great nation, or all the mayhem, hanks, and murder goblins that tend to come crawling out of the woodwork in this particular season. Say, that actually reminds me, what is orange, round, full of hot air, and will be fun to smash against the curb when this madness is over hmm oh shit if y'all hey if y'all said donald trump shame 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 i was gonna say a jack-o'-lantern now y'all y'all should be ashamed though seriously comparing a an empty soulless disposable object to the majesty and splendor that is a beloved symbol of halloween so just you know shame um but for real y'all, Halloween may be a bit of a bummer this year, but it's worth certainly. Um, it's worth curtailing our uh, annual fright-fueled antics, I think, to keep more people from getting sick. I feel so bad for, for my kiddo though, my daughter, uh, but we are making the best of it. We're camping out in the living room. And watching scary movies all day and night, followed by a s'mores and a flashlight candy hunt, and uh, that's all going to go down after it gets dark. It's going to be different, but it is still going to be fucking boss. Now, this episode here is the tenth of the year, and I'm both pleased and proud to have artist Zach Brown on the show to talk about Creep Show from nineteen 1900- hundred. 82 zach's a big fan of the genre so his part in this discussion was super fucking fun to be involved with and i hope that y'all have a good time listening if y'all like the show head on over to apple podcasts and leave a five star review show them that you're a fan and they will help me get the show out in front of more folks hit follow on spotify too if uh if that's your thing now if you want to support the show financially yay head on over to www.patreon.com slash the sleeping giant podcast and become a patron for only one dollar a month you will get a shout out and a personalized thank you from yours truly and you'll be helping to cover the costs of uh of you know domains the web hosting um hardware upgrades just all that stuff to make a better show for you the listeners at home also check me out on instagram and facebook and uh, that's going to be at the sleeping giant podcast on instagram and www.facebook.com the sleeping giant podcast you can look for me on twitter if you want but i most of the time just forget that that is a platform Uh, Either way, that is at TSG underscore pod. All right, then, y'all. Go on and get comfy, because we are about to begin. Zach, are you there? Hey, Grayson, how are you? I'm very well, sir. I, I appreciate you asking. Thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your night to join me this evening.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to. Anytime to talk about something spooky. Yeah, yeah it's, it's always welcome. And it is that time of the year,
1: of course. I, uh, I decided a little while ago that I was going to continue doing horror films for the rest of the year just because I feel like Halloween has kind of been taken away from me a little bit this year.
0: Yes, I definitely feel the same way. Uh, maybe a little bit, I guess every year since I've started to delve more into adulthood, but yeah, especially this year, me and my wife haven't got to do, uh, as many activities and our, our anniversary is like four days before Halloween. So we had a, uh, we had a Halloween themed wedding, Halloween and Batman mix. So we always try to do fun stuff. Um, last year we went to the Myers house in North Carolina. It's close to Chapel Hill. And this guy does a lot of screenings of different horror film locations, but he hosts one and he didn't do it this year, obviously, but he hosts, um, one at his house, uh, every year and he has recreated the Michael Myers house mm-hmm. and he screens the original Halloween and then a couple other Halloween movies. And we went last year, I was, a uh, I was Beetlejuice and my wife was Lydia and that was probably one of the most fun things I had done in the last couple of Halloween's. Oh wow, that's awesome! And you know what? I actually remember you posting
1: that costume that you wore on Instagram. And let me let me just say that one of the things about my show and this podcast is it uh, it's basically just a vehicle for me to completely fanboy <laughs> over. Uh, some of the the artists and creators that I have an opportunity to speak with. So I've been a big fan of of what you've been doing for a while. So keep doing that thing.
0: I appreciate that. Yeah, I am, I am my own worst and harshest critic. So uh, with just about everything, I can nitpick it and uh, feel like it's not quite good enough. So it's nice to hear that other people are enjoying what I'm putting out there. Absolutely. I mean, you seem to have a real
1: love and appreciation, uh, as far as your artwork is concerned, for uh, comic books and horror films. So I have to ask how how long have you been a fan of horror?
0: Since I was very,
1: very little,
0: um, my parents let me watch HBO and Tales from the Crypt from when I was a really, really little kid. Like I remember, they said I used to watch it and I would have an Afghan around me. And at the, uh, the beginning during the intro at the end, whenever the crib pops out of the coffin, um, they said I would always like pull the Afghan over my eyes, but I could still see through the holes. They said I was terrified of him, but I, I would love it afterwards. Like once he started talking, he was telling jokes. I was just enamored with the, uh, the crib himself, but they let me watch everything that it's really funny. Um, My mom is very into thrillers, psychological Mm -hmm. thrillers. And I remember watching like Silence of the Lambs and Misery and these movies and just being fascinated with them as a kid. And she was an, an ER nurse. And I remember sometimes I would have to go and stay in like the nurse's break room if she didn't have anybody to watch me. So I would stay back there and they had a TV and one time I brought the RVHS copy of Misery that we had recorded off of TV. And I can just imagine if any nurses walked in there, what would they think to walk in and see, like, this six- or seven-year-old kid watching Misery just, like, sitting there eating lunch, you know? It was <laughs> strange that I was that, like, into it, I guess. And I would have said that was, like, my favorite movie for a while when I was a kid.
1: Wow. Yeah, it's it's definitely... I think times are a little bit different now. Me personally, I, I take no issue with that whatsoever. Uh, I know we had spoken previously about the films that, uh, that we watched when we were little and, and uh, my daughter's a big horror fan, but you know, there are some lines that are are drawn uh, as far as, you know, I think we draw the line basically at Texas Chainsaw Massacre because that's, in my mind, just depravity (laughs) and, you know, kind of want to give it a little bit of time, uh, before she jumps into that one. But, you know, when you're dealing with more pulpy stuff and, uh, you know, speaking of tales from the crypt, it's, you know, it's very tongue in cheek, you know, so I, I don't think that it's one of those things that you should really take too seriously. You know what I mean?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. But as a, as a kid, I took it to heart. It was scary. I didn't really catch a lot of the humor unless it mm-hmm. was keeper himself. Now when I watch it, it is very much for a sense of nostalgia. And it's it's a totally different show. I have a completely different appreciation for it as an adult. Mm-hmm. But I remember as a kid watching it and some parts of it were just I just remember being so scary. Um and now when I watch it, you know, is you're an adult, so you can see all of the all the flaws and maybe the costumes may not be the best or the makeup wasn't a hundred percent the best, but you mm-hmm. know get a face value when I was younger. I think it's just the your childhood imagination and your your eye at that time. It just you kind of interpret things differently. So I I do think it's interesting that your daughter's such a big fan of horror. I think that's really cool and hopefully when she gets older she'll kind of develop the same Appreciation for it.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I'm hoping. It's it's as as a parent, you you have these ideas, and then you you're a parent for a little while, and and you begin to learn that those ideas don't mean anything, and <laughs> you just have to kind of let it go, and you know let your kid be whoever they're gonna be, and uh, but but I will say that my fingers are crossed, and uh, I, I've I think she's got a a, a dark future ahead of her. <laughs> we'll say that. Um, so what is it that that draws you to that aspect of of media? Um so have you have you always been drawn to visual media? Oh
0: definitely, yes. Uh I I've been drawing since I was probably like four or five years old. And my parents kept all my stuff that I drew, and the very earliest drawings they have that I've seen on like yellow notebook paper is mm-hmm. Bat- Batman Batman. Crypt Keeper and Captain Hook. So I don't know like why it was that stuff. I remember watching the 89 Batman movie and Hook just on repeat at home. And I guess Tales from the Crypt too. So it was it was those things I guess I just was very pulled into kind of the dark, imaginative characters. And that's that's still what I like to draw now. I love superhero movies, but if I was left to my own devices, I almost always draw the same characters and I don't know if it's a combination of the, uh, the kind of dark quality that they have and the nostalgia that I have for that particular character. I, you know, I have a, uh, an emotional connection to certain ones, but I would, I prefer to draw characters, especially uh, I guess, extreme or bizarre characters. I can do portraits of anyone, but, it's strange. I kind of find it boring if I have to do somebody that's kind of uh, just, you know, normal or I, I, if I could choose, I would do the ones that are strange. That's,
1: that's interesting to me because when I'm looking at some of the art you've created and, and I'm looking at these dark characters, you, and this is actually something my wife pointed out, you do not you don't seem to be afraid of utilizing a lot of color. Is that, is that something that, you were naturally drawn to, or was it a conscious choice when you are putting these things together?
0: Oh, that's something I developed. Um, I would say after I got out of college, because even then that's when I really started to get good at painting when it was when I was in college, but I was very, very bound to mostly the colors that I would see in my photo references, those natural colors. Sometimes I would experiment with like very, um, saturated primary or secondary colors like but they were very rudimentary um, just recently I guess in the last couple of years I've I've started to do that and I think that just comes from the application of the color pencils that I use over the markers and really trying to push that intensity of certain colors because I
1: mm-hmm. guess
0: some of the posters that I'm inspired by or some different artwork that I like, I, I just appreciate those really kind of vibrant um, candy-like colors sometimes. And, you know, I, I do black and white pieces every now and then. And sometimes I do pull back on the saturation if that's what the piece calls for or the, let's say like the design calls for, if it's, it's uh, for apparel. But if it's me, yeah, I really like to push those bright uh, colors. I think it, Maybe it's just evocative of, like, 80s posters or something.
1: Well, I, I can tell you I'm a fan, and I think it creates a really cool juxtaposition, um, you know, especially when dealing with with subject matter, uh, such as, well, I don't want to use the Joker because he's kind of garish anyway. But, uh, say, Beetlejuice, who in the film, the the colors were fairly muted. In that, but then you see something that you've created, and you really play with that, and I think that's I think that's really cool. So uh, once again, just just uh, sort of you know fanboying, uh, <laughs> I really like it. Um, so before we move into our discussion of Creep Show, I kind of want to uh, this and and have you tell people where they can find you on social media if they want to check some of the stuff out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, my Instagram handle is my full name. It's Zachary Jackson Brown Art. And my website is the same thing, it's just Zachary Jackson And I really go by uh, Zach Brown like whenever uh, most people know me. And that's how I sign my work. But the Zachary Jackson Brown thing basically came from when I started my website, <laughs> there was already a Zach Brown.com. So I kind of had to stretch it out into my full name.
1: Well, it sounds very distinguished. It's it's going to look very good when you reach your golden years. I think. I hope
0: so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Well, that's awesome. And again, guys, y'all y'all gotta check that out, man. It's uh, it is good stuff, and I wholeheartedly recommend it. The subject of this particular episode is going to be creep show, and this was actually your choice, Zach, and I'm very happy that you made that decision because I have not seen this movie properly in probably about 15 years. And, and having watched it for the show, I cannot for the life of me figure out number one, why it's been so long since I've seen it. And number two, why I don't own uh, this, this film on VHS DVD, Blu-ray and every other iteration of Uh, of media that it's been released in since uh, 1982. So this is a really cool movie in that it's Stephen King's screenwriting debut. It's it's George Romero and Stephen King, uh, which is just a beautiful marriage, in my opinion. Um, So what what is it about this movie that that made you pick this one over all of the other horror movies that we could have done?
0: That's kind of funny. Um, I'm not sure why it popped in my head first. It is one of my favorite scary movies. I think, you know, they do these things on Instagram where you might have to put down like your three favorite horror movies. And the third one always kind of rotates around for me. Mm-hmm. But, um, Creepshow is usually my third. It's uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street and then Halloween 3, Season of the Witch oh. and then Creepshow. And then it'll rotate around a little bit. But I um, I just really love the atmosphere that they created in it. it may, you know, I am a big fan of Tales from the Crypto TV show, and you know they are pulling from that EC comic style and trying to use the colors and the framing devices and uh, how the they are actually having panels in the movie. I just love how they're trying to make it like a a living version of EC comics and it's, it's George Romero and Stephen King's kind of love letter to that. And I just think it's so great. And I'm a, I'm a big anthology horror movie fan, regardless. I really like that format. I just think it's, it's kind of fun to just have these, uh, shorter, more easily digestible stories, uh, within one film, especially if it's got a really good wraparound.
1: Absolutely. I, I had an epiphany today when i was I was in the vehicle with my wife, and uh, we were talking about actually the the length of time that had passed since I'd last seen this movie. And I realized that, kind of like you, I am a sucker for anthology films. And to me, a uh, there's nothing that beats a good framing device in my opinion. I, I just I love it. Uh, Michael Doherty's Trick or Treat the way that that film was handled I mean it's I just can't get enough of that stuff um, so yeah that that was a big thing for me too and and being a fan of Tales from the Crypt I was just a little older when I started watching that I think I was probably about 8 I was staying at a hotel and they had the little HBO guide and it was Tales from the Crypt and I was like oh this looks like it could be funny and uh, spoiler alert it wasn't but but I loved it very much. So, a big fan of that, and uh, I just I don't know why so much time had passed before I realized that this was something that that appealed to me so much. And a huge Stephen King fan also. Um, so the framing device in in this film, it's uh, five stories, and it is bookended by uh, an intro and an epilogue wherein you kind of see this. Um, this kid is reading the uh, the creep show comic, and his dad comes in, and he's just a real asshole to him about it. Which, you know, I'm sure some of us have experienced at one time or another in some form or fashion. But I gotta ask you: Do you think that D. Snyder saw this before he made the the infamous music video where the kid wants to rock?
0: <laughs> I don't know but that. I never really put those together before. It does kind of seem like a similar setup, you know, where the dad's like coming in and being a hard-ass and and you know taking away his comic book and everything. So I never thought about that. This part scared me more than the actual stories when I was a kid. I'm not sure why, and we'll talk about the ending, I'm sure, when we get there, but the father scared me at the beginning and then the little boy scared me a lot uh, by the end of the film.
1: One of the things that I, I realized this go-round watching it is that it was pure Stephen King, like in the, in the intro, when the dad pours himself a beer, and he says, that's why God created fathers. And it's just like such a Stephen King line, but it's so sinister.
0: Oh, absolutely. And did you know that that is uh, Stephen King's son playing the little boy?
1: Yeah. I Well, I didn't know that originally. I found that out over the course of of having watched this again, because I saw that he was credited as Joe King. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I suppose he goes by Joe Hill professionally now, but it's funny. I remember seeing the little boy this time and, and, uh, coincidentally when I had seen a picture of Joe Hill, um, advertising or promoting, uh, I think not maybe it was to I don't know. I was like, I'll be damned. That guy looks just like Stephen King. <laughs> and then seeing this little boy, I was like, Hey, that looks like Stephen King. And then of course, credits and putting two and two together. But that is really crazy. Um, it's amazing how involved uh, just the King, Stephen King and, and the King family seem to be in, in this picture. So yeah, the, 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 uh, the idea of, of, the creep, I suppose, or, or I don't know what you would call him exactly. Um, the the undead entity or our crypt keeper in this particular instance is um, after the child goes to bed, he's sort of hovering outside of the window and we get that amazing animated intro. Um, so apparently, and I didn't know this, but apparently that model um, or, or that creature i i suppose i should say was an actual human skeleton and that was not known to me prior to uh to watching this this go around
0: yeah um his name is definitely the creep i'm pretty sure because he's also credited as that same character in the second one despite looking quite different but i had even read that tom savini had that he had planned to do more with him i think the animatronic was maybe um not as articulate as he wanted it to be. So was probably held back, but he said that they wanted to film like a much more, I guess uh, a much different beginning to it. But I think because the animatronic wasn't up to speed, they had to just do a little quick clip of him and then do the animated intro. Like he, he you know, he, uh, he melds into the animation, but yes, that's definitely, um, definitely a Crypt Keeper nod. And it's funny because that is the first undead version of like a comic book horror host. I don't know if the Crypt Keeper is supposed to be or not in the comics, but he looks like an old kind of derelict man. He wasn't yeah. a, a corpse, you know, until the HBO show. So really, I guess Creepshow kind of uh, tackled that concept first.
1: Yeah, I was really shocked when I saw that the uh... – that the date on this film was 82 because that changed a lot of my a lot of my perceptions of later films and and again i thought when i was watching this that uh that twisted sister album had come out first but that actually came out in 84 so that's why the wheels kind of started uh turning on that one so yeah it seems to have been a really strong influence on some of these later things that that we know and love and And uh, speaking of the EC horror stuff, I mean, they they really kind of officialized it by having uh, Jack Kamen, I believe his name was, um, create the comic book as he was the artist that worked very heavily um, with with EC doing the Vault of Horror and uh, Tales from the Crypt. So that. This is a legit film. You know, it's very official in that stance and position.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it's great. I know. Even I think Bernie Wright Wrightson did the comic book adaptation, and it's just like beautiful to look at. It. It does look exactly like the old EC horror comics. Yeah, I love that intro because I think the the parts that were, it's animated as actually a strength because it kind of gives you that flavor of the comic book and those colors and and even the music the music to me is great it it scared me as a kid the kind of ethereal choir anything like that always scared me
1: it is the perfect marriage of so many ideas and creative choices that again i'm just kicking myself over here as to why i let so much time go by and why don't why i don't own this so we get this this beautiful animated intro that's just so reminiscent of of these comics, and that is something that carries over into the film as we start with the first tale, which is Father's Day. Uh, this one is a little darker, I would say, than than some of the other tales, simply because of the subject matter. I mean, you're dealing with like an overbearing father who's who's uh, murdered by his daughter and i will say it's not like he was a ray of sunshine um <laughs> he was anything but actually and so the the story progresses in that uh, there's a dinner party that's being thrown by by his uh, his relatives i think it's the thing though and everybody shows up the daughter gets drunk and typically uh pisses off before uh, anything can really get too crazy so they're just looking forward to getting this thing done uh ed harris is in this one also who it's just so weird to see ed harris who i mean i know him now as a pretty uh proficient and just a very strong actor and in this he's just kind of like "Mm, i'm here what 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 is your your take on this bit
0: honestly oh this uh section is it's pretty good um I remember it scaring me a lot as a kid, like the part where you can see the flashback whenever she murders her father and Mm -hmm. him yelling and stuff always scared me. And, uh, you know, whenever um, the hand pops out of the ground later, that made me jump the very first time I saw it. But yeah, him yelling always frightened me, but he was a little inaudible at some points or at least whatever he was saying sometimes or she was saying was a little unintelligible. But Mm -hmm. this to me... Well, all of the sections, I think, pretty much have a, a really great quote or tagline that could go along with it. But yeah, this one was like, it's Father's Day, where's my cake? And him beating his cane. It was just, uh, it's great. It's, to me, it's a good way to start this off with just pure um, undead creatures coming back to life. That's one of the first things I think about when I think of EC Comics
1: yeah and the thing about this one too that struck me is that there's not really a good guy in this one you know there's not somebody who's down on their luck and something bad happens to them and then things get crazy um there's no there's no one that gets saved necessarily um there's not even revenge because like i said the the father uh, played by john lormer he he was a tool um so it's not like he had any sort of validation or um, he didn't have the moral upper hand or high ground, um, which I thought was really interesting. Now, the only thing that really stood out to me, well, I should say two things stood out to me in this one. Um, I think it was Vivica lindfors who played Bedelia. The, little, the monologue she had at the grave when she was drinking Jim Beam, I think, which is just not a good choice, but that's neither here nor there, um, that that uh, that monologue—it was just man, it was powerful. I I was sitting there watching it, and I was thinking it's it's almost wasted on this film. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but that's neither here nor there because it's it's cut short by the hand popping out of the grave, like you said. And ah, gosh, it's I'm finding it's di- difficult to articulate how I feel about this one because I I love it and I hate it too. I I think that the thing that I find the most appealing is the creature makeup, mm-hmm. um, after the father climbs out of the grave and starts picking off the family members uh, one at a time. And then it, there's the, like you really get the full effect of what they're trying to do with the, with making it appear as if it were a comic with that really saturated, uh, kind of Jallo um, uh, lighting. Yes, Um, which is extremely cool. Uh, And then you you got the guy, you know, after the dad comes out with with the cake that he finally got, and his his reaction is just it's priceless. I don't even know if I can replicate it or if I should try to replicate
0: it, but just (laughs) oh
1: my god,
0: (laughs) he makes this noise that is just so bizarre. He's like, it's like (laughs) his head shaking around. Um, I get. I get what you mean. It certainly is cynical, and unlike the usual EC format where there is usually a rotten person that gets their comeuppance, this mm-hmm. does appear to be just a, a ghoul come back for revenge, but like you said, he I mean, he deserved it in the first place. He was terrible. I think they were just, you know, kind of reaching to... Come up with some kind of undead story, and you know this was uh, Stephen King, so maybe he just wanted to jump into that that kind of a an idea where maybe there there really aren't any good guys in there. You don't you certainly don't feel any sympathy for any of the characters except maybe maybe Ed Harris.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that was the other thing actually is um, uh, there were two things that I mentioned, um, one being Bedelia's monologue, and then the other uh, Ed Harris, who when he's killed. I, I don't understand it because he, he falls into the grave and then part of the headstone very slowly and with ample time <laughs> to remove yourself from the situation crushes his head in. And that I'm just really not sure what happened there.
0: Yeah. It does seem like he could have just like rolled over really quickly. Cause that was a, I mean, but he was, he fell on top of Bedelia, I guess, or she was right next to him, but it was a shallow, impression in the ground it was a i don't know that's always funny to me but i guess you just have to take it at at face value and they were trying to just go for this uh, maybe a little more schlocky yeah
1: (laughs) yeah well you won't get any complaints from me at all Um, it's just one of those things that sticks out at you and you're like well, why? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it did make for a great segment, and uh, just the way that that one is tied together when uh, when when the uh, the old feller comes out with the the cake, but it's uh, I'm not sure which daughter it was or granddaughter maybe, but it's just the head with the candles, and he says, oh, I finally got my cake
0: it's It's perfect. It's- his voice too is, um, I'm not sure what effect they did on it, but it's fantastic. It sounds like he is speaking through gravel, and it's that's something that always stuck with me. It was a very, very particular sound editing they did on it, and I always liked that.
1: Yes, I have zero zero complaints about that segment. Zero complaints about the movie, really. Um, but that was a great way to to start it, and then you. You get like the, and you may have to help me here because I'm getting a little fuzzy, but you, you get an animated segment between every tale, right, with the pages of the comic?
0: Yes, it's um maybe like one or two flips of the page. You, It kind of pulls away and you can see where the comic book has, is sitting on top of the trash can. Sometimes the storm going on outside blows the wind uh the wind blows the pages and at one point i know it flips and lands on the ground and opens up again but uh yeah it's cool because you get to see these little little advertisements that you would see in the comics back then it would be like you know i guess like a quick and easy way to get really muscular and buff or like x-ray glasses and and different little joke things like that and then it it transitions to um the next story so you get a really quick image of the the creep again And, and he's a not animated but in cartoon form on the page and then it it goes to the panel and then it shifts from animated to uh photorealism where they they kind of go into the scene
1: yeah i love that that's just it's so on point the next segment is the lonesome death of jordy oh gosh veril veril yeah that sounds right um and this one, whenever I think about Creepshow, this is the one that I always remember the most, probably because it's Stephen King. And he has way more than a cameo in this. In fact, he is the title character. Pretty simple premise. You have this character, Jordy who uh, lives by himself, it looks like, on, a, on an old farmhouse. And out of nowhere, in the middle of everything, a meteor strikes the, uh, the yard outside his house. So he goes to investigate, like, you know, like you do. And uh, he decides to touch it, which I, I think at this point illustrates that he's not necessarily the brightest guy that there is. Um, and it's from that moment that the story unfolds. So what do you think about this one?
0: I will say that when I was younger, this was maybe my least favorite, or I, fi- I found it kind of slow, but once I got older and found out that that was Stephen King, it gave me a whole new appreciation for it. And I see it for, I guess, more of the comedy aspect. So now it is one of my favorites and it's got one of the best uh, quotable lines in it. Ooh, okay. Well, let me
1: know when we get to that because I'm curious oh. which one you think that is. Um, So I will say that, this one, I think, resonates with me the most because around the time that I would seen this, I couldn't tell you exactly what age I was, but it was one of the first times I had seen it. Uh, I had watched this, and not long after that, I was helping my dad mow the lawn, and I think I went to to move something on the lawnmower, and it was still hot. Um, and the, uh, the metal burned me, and it left this... Really crazy sort of modeled design on my fingers, and I was like, "Oh no, I'm gonna <laughs> turn into a grass person now," <laughs> and I was just deathly afraid that that was gonna happen to me. So I must have been pretty young to, uh, to have not, you know, to to not have that much sense. But um, but yeah, this one was always great, and I didn't realize when I was a child. Uh, it wasn't until I watched it this time around that this may actually be the most sinister installment in creep show.
0: It certainly is mean spirited. (laughs)
1: Well, the implication I think is that as the stuff starts happening to Jordy, um, after he, he moves the meteor and it, uh, I think he tries to cool it off with water and it splits in half and that glowing gunk starts to leak out of it. And, uh, you know he has his fantasies of of winning, um, what was it, two hundred dollars?
0: Oh yeah, he was going to college, and he's like, I'm not going to take less than two hundred dollars. He just had it in the bucket.
1: <laughs> yes, the Department of Meteors at the yeah. college. That that's the best. I say that as this stuff starts happening to him, uh, the implication that this is the fate of the world, I think, is made. Did you did you pick up on that at all?
0: Uh yes, especially at especially at the end, you do get the sense that it's uh it's going to be this apocalyptic occurrence, and it really just started with this one like uh, lone human being out here at the farm. So I think that's kind of interesting that you see everything play out with him first.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's it says something to me. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's almost it's it's almost sad and refreshing at the same time, if that makes any sense. Um, It's kind of sad in that you have this character who, you know, is clearly not all there um, and has these ideas of of maybe how this thing could change his life. Um, But as you said, he's so far removed um, from town and from people. And then, you know, what will presumably be the rest of the world that this guy who doesn't really seem like he's amounted to all of that much gets to experience this thing that is going to change the world. And he was there for it at the beginning ground zero. And I, to me, I I'm very fascinated by that.
0: I never really thought about it that way. Yeah, it's true. He definitely just seems to be, you know, like a nobody kind of schmuck and mainly this fool character that is, it based, you know this may have happened anyways as far as the uh alien plant life spreading but the fact that it touched him first and it, he is the one going through this body horror is uh is very interesting
1: yeah it's uh, and it it is it is dark in that sense however there is sort of uh there's this injection of comedy that usually comes in the form of, of his, his fantasies and his musings, which are, you know, shown on camera. Um, The other thing that's interesting about this is that there is no other person in this segment. It's, it's all him on his farm, except for of course his, uh, you know, these fantasy elements. But the weird thing is he sees, uh, he's, he's, itching all over, and he thinks that if he gets in the bath, that that's going to help him somehow, and he gets this vision from his deceased father, and he's warning him not to uh, get in the tub. So
0: how do you think that plays in into the story? Well, I did think it was interesting that the the man that played the father was the same guy that played the head of <laughs> or the Department of Meteors at the college, and the doctor that was going to cut his fingers off because he had gotten the plant life on there i i did think that was very interesting and it could have been uh it could have been a nod to something more subliminal in that maybe Jordy's relationship with his father has led him to kind of see him as all these different authority figures Mm -hmm. but no i
1: i think that's a very good point
0: yeah the whole bathtub thing always kind of got me i couldn't understand a exactly what the dad said i think the first time that i saw it but i just remember him being like you know i'm a goner anyways aren't i and then you know his dad disappears at that point but i get the sense that it's it's itching and probably like the the plant life that is growing on him is probably causing that itching because it it wants water as well so it's kind of tempting him into uh getting into the bathtub yeah
1: and what's even more disturbing now that i think about it is that that meteor could have landed anywhere and it, it could have landed in the middle of nowhere and no one could have found it. It could have been buried by dust, dirt, and time. Who knows it and nothing would have come of, come of that. And it just, it gets the wheels turning it. And you begin to ask yourself questions, or at least I do. It's like, how many times does that happen <laughs> <You know? laughs> on a regular basis? How many potentially, Life-changing scenarios uh, come crashing through the atmosphere, and nobody knows anything about it.
0: Yeah, it almost it almost makes you. I guess if you really look at it, you almost have less sympathy for Jordy because if it wasn't for him pouring water on the meteor, it would have never split open in the first place, and spread the uh, the meteor shit as he calls it inside. Yeah, A- and it never would have touched him. So. In a way, he is the uh, he's the harbinger of doom for the entire world because he did that.
1: Yeah, and and Stephen King has a, a very interesting way of of doing that or using that as a device in some of his stories, where you know he'll flesh out these, um, and I'm gonna say or I I'd like to interject that Stephen King has a very proficient knack for riding yokels mm-hmm. um, and I, I can only assume that uh, it comes from you know growing up knowing a lot of people like that I mean I grew up in the south and I don't mean that in a negative way at all um, you know I'm referring to you know your neighbor down the street who you grew up with and uh, maybe wasn't all there you know might have been a little inbreeding and, and when I say I grew up in the South, I mean I grew up in the rural South. So that's not hyperbole. Um, so there, uh, there's that situation. And I, I just think Stephen King is able to, to do that very well. But my point is that he oftentimes will use those characters uh, as a means to set monumental events into motion. And I think that's something that he utilizes often. And I, I just... I find that that's an interesting uh, observation into to how he perceives things.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it goes along with your idea that this this individual who most likely was a nobody and amounted to very little has now taken a well a very important role in the rest of the history of the earth, whether anyone knows it or not.
1: It's a good segment, and and like I said, it it was. And I might not have said that it was not necessarily my favorite one um, when I was younger. But having seen this now, I have a, a far more profound appreciation for it. It's classic Stephen King in all the right Stephen King ways. It ticks all the boxes for me. I have to know, though, which which quote were you referring to that, that oh, you had mentioned?
0: Yeah, meteor shit. I, <laughs> <laughs> media shit. Yeah. yeah meteor shit just that voice and him saying that it's uh it's iconic like i cannot think of that story without hearing that and i've even i've got a little enamel pen i think fright rags did it that it's it's meteor shit but it's done in the um it's the the words but it's like look like it looks like it's covered in the grass and stuff that's on him but it's uh, awesome i would say like each each story has its own little line, but if if someone just asked me like one quote that I could think of from Creepshow that just immediately made me think of it, it would be that. Oh man, that's fantastic.
1: Um, I I will say too <laughs> that I had read that when they were filming this segment that Romero had told Stephen King to just go for it, to be as over the top as he possibly could. And I, I think that's what we got, because anyone who's seen Stephen King and a cameo of, of one of the uh, films adapted from his work might argue that he's not the best actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he really goes for it in this one. And uh, I mean, this was 1982, so... Uh, it's no secret at this point that Stephen King uh, was a fan of the old uh, booger sugar.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's um, I know two things. I know that Stephen King, I'm not sure if he's come around to it by now, but he was deeply ashamed of this performance for a long time. I think he didn't realize how he would come off. Uh, Maybe he didn't know he'd be so comical. And um, just like you had mentioned, he definitely was, this was like his drug-fueled phase uh, at the height of that part of his career. And I have heard from the uh, special features of this film called Just Desserts, is uh, that he actually wandered off set one day, I know was extremely high, and almost got hit by a car because he had wandered in character, in costume, with all this uh, green stuff on him. I think kind of in between, he wasn't in full gillyweed gear yet but he did wander onto a highway and almost get hit by a car and no one could find him for a while when they were trying to film the scene so i think one guy said later he's like well i'm not surprised he got hit by that car you know later on in life uh before he decided to quit doing drugs when he was running off doing stuff like this
1: Oh man, I, you know, I, I thought that, but I, but I wasn't gonna say it. <laughs> that's that's actually kind of funny. It's like it was meant to happen.
0: Oh yeah, that's that's probably one of my favorite. I think stories from that. That's you know this film, whatever was going on behind the scenes. That again, it's it.
1: I'm gonna put a pin in it because I, I don't know for sure that it's my favorite segment. I'll have to reassess that after we address uh, the next few. Um, the next one. Uh, something to tide you over. This one is just batshit crazy, yeah. and this this was the segment that I wandered into the first time I had the first time I saw a creep show. Um, this one's interesting in that we have as as one of our leads Leslie Nielsen, who typically is uh, known for his comedy and and you know being really funny, and of course you know you have uh, like. Um, Airplane and uh, Naked Gun and and all those things. Um, But he is dark,
0: dark in this one. It's exceptional. I would say um, whenever comedic actors play something like this, whether it be serious or just downright sinister, I feel like it takes on a whole new uh, resonance because you're used to having certain feelings about this particular actor and most of the characters they play, they're those warm, happy feelings. or they make you laugh? And when they are scary, it it is, uh, I think even more jarring. And to me, this is one of the best of from the film. And I think it's a lot of it lends to his performance. Um, and he's a very, very good, serious actor, you, you know, from what you can see here.
1: Absolutely. And and to kind of add to that point, I would say that uh, seeing that change um, or that this side of an actor like that is is unsettling. But it's even more unsettling when they do it so well, Um, because it's not just different. It's it's different. And he's damn good at it. I mean, I was legitimately frightened by this guy.
0: It's great. Uh, I remember just being really shocked the first time I saw it because I wasn't expecting that from them. And I think this uh, particular story where, again, they are kind of going with the uh, the undead revenge line or the dead coming back to life, this one works. And, you know, one of the things I
1: noticed is that it's kind of uh, it's kind of a tonal shift, Um Whereas the previous two stories were kind of, uh, I mean, they were gross, but they were kind of lighthearted. You know, they had some comedic elements to them. Uh, this one seems a little bit more serious and it, it has an edge to it.
0: Yes, it certainly does. I, I think it feels that way, especially at the beginning of it. By the time you get to the end and, you know, everything just kind of like, you know, gets blown out of the water, then it feels like pure comic book but at the yeah. beginning, it's, it's very, very um, serious, and I, I like it because of that. The the premise
1: is that you've got this this wealthy guy that that Nielsen plays. I can't remember the character's name, um, but he finds out that his wife is cheating on him, and you know that's that's a big thing. And I could see how it would be extremely upsetting, and and one might lose their head, so to speak. But this dude. No. <laughs> he, he is extremely cold and calculating in how he decides to enact revenge, or excuse me, exact revenge on uh, his wife, and I guess uh, her lover, which is Ted Danson, which is just great. <laughs> um, so the the idea is that he he takes he takes his wife and he buries her on the beach. Uh, during low tide and then films her as she drowns essentially, uh, with the tide rising and, and constantly, um, you know, splashing her in the face and rolling over her head. I can imagine that it's probably very akin to waterboarding and that's not something I like to imagine, um, at all, but it's, it's a, it's a very sadistic, uh, torturous method of, of killing someone. And it's, I don't know, man, it's hardcore.
0: Yes. I've often thought that drowning is probably one of the worst ways to die. Um, and I used to be a, a lifeguard and I did like, um, I did the swim team in high school. So I remember being in the water a lot and we used to have to train holding our breaths. Uh, and yeah, when you hold your breath for a long time, it does feel like it starts to burn in your chest and in your lungs. Cause you're like, body's like, you need to breathe so you can get oxygen. So I just, I I don't like the idea of even imagining breathing in water. It just seems uh, extremely painful or, or uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty much uh, 100% counterintuitive to uh, staying alive. Um, so he he does the same thing to his wife's lover. Um, although this time, when he does it to uh, the Ted Danson character, we get to watch how he is able to do this and how he's able to get somebody to, um, I guess, go, go through with putting themselves in a hole where they can be buried. And it's kind of a long process. It's lengthy. And there are times leading up to the tide coming in where you kind of, you can appreciate the sense of helplessness that you would have if you were buried up to your, to your neck in wet sand. I think there's a a moment where he teases him by pushing the sand forward into his face, uh, where he could have been suffocated right then and there. But of course, it's not going to be that easy. And then the crab comes along. <laughs> and, and It's just like, oh, my God, you you would lose your mind, I think, before you actually drowned. And that's one of the things that makes it so sadistic. Um, But speaking of sadism, not only does he do this to these people, but he films it as well. He, he filmed his wife and he had Ted Danson uh, watch this on a television as the tide was coming in to claim him. And of course he's filming him uh, as he is watching this television and as the tide is coming in. So it all comes around when, Leslie Nielsen is at home and he's watching these tapes like he's doing it for kicks. So, again, you you get this this feeling uh, that this is this is just not a nice guy at all. And I mean, far be it for me to look into their marriage or potential sources of unhappiness. But uh, (laughs) one may begin to suspect that it could have been his fault.
0: Yes, and you also get the sense that this is not the first time he's done something like this because he has a lot of tapes. So I imagine that either he's done this exact thing before or he's done other nasty things to people while filming it. And one of his character quirks that I think is kind of interesting is he seems very very um, in tune with television and recording technology because he even mentions at Ted Danson's house about how he needs to check the cables on the back of his TV because the colors won't be right. And it's like, he's just very, I don't know. He seems to be on the up and up as far as that particular technology goes. So I think that's, I don't know. That's like his, his thing in the film.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I got that, that same impression, um, especially given when he's looking for the tape and he has so many, Um, you, you get a sense that, and I can't even remember exactly what it was, but you get a sense that all of those tapes were insidious, uh, or, or I should say, um, sinister. Those are two horror movies, but whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) wasn't trying to make that reference. Sinister was the word I was looking for. Um. And yeah, you you just get the idea that uh, he is he's just not a good guy at all. Uh, but this is an undead revenge tale, so one could make the reasonable assumption that uh, that his his now deceased wife and her lover might come back to uh, to to enact their revenge. I guess the point's really driven home though, because uh, Ted Danson's character. Basically, as, as the tide is coming in and it's going to cover his head, he he yells into the camera and, and swears vengeance. Um, so, yeah, one one could reasonably assume that that would be the thing that that happened next.
0: Oh, yes. And it, it definitely comes to a satisfying head. Um, and I like how they show up at his house. You know, he has like a beach house mm-hmm. and. The music that they do, I should say they, the music that the composer writes, I always liked because it was super, super creepy. And it's like kind of these violin strings just being like plucked and kind of like strung across really quickly. It feels like very, there is a sound that almost sounds like water. It's just like, and it's kind of like moving around really fast, but it's very light and plucky. And he, I think he's just got out of the shower or he's in the shower or something But you are seeing their footsteps from coming from the beach first. And then on the video screens, you see like the door open, but there's nothing there. But you see uh, their feet kind of stepping on things like squishing along uh, as they're very soaked and saturated. Maybe a little too bloated and decomposed to have just died, you know, that day. But the, the makeup is great when you do see it. I think...
1: Honestly, this may be the most well-composed segment. Um, again, toss-up uh, between the previous one and this one for my favorite. Um, but I think that uh, it's it's got to be the highest quality segment. The production, um, the composition is amazing. You, you mentioned the soundtrack. Uh, it's a slow burn, too, which I'm always a, a pretty big fan of the slow burn. Um, but one of the things, too, is that um, the performance that Leslie Nielsen gives is it's it's outstanding, um, especially when they come back from the dead. You see his facial expressions really shift from uh, just this, you know, smarmy, uh, confident guy to uh, the disquiet that's creeping in. Into and and sort of eroding that confidence, and he he does that so well, even to the point that uh, before they make it to him, that he actually has a sheen of sweat on him. So like they're doing all of these things to really ramp up the tension and uh, you know convey that anxiety that that he's feeling. I mean, even the the fish in the aquarium that they cut to, they you know, you get the impression that the fish are agitated, which I thought was a really cool, uh, really cool touch. But, yeah, when they finally get to him, uh, as you mentioned, they maybe look a little bit too decomposed, maybe a little bit too bloated, but, I mean, it's a great effect. And uh, the the voice that they use there, again, the effect on their voices – um, it was unintelligible at times, but to me that actually kind of adds to it, um, as opposed to uh, to taking taking away from it. So it's just amazing to me um, that particular that particular segment.
0: Oh yeah, and yeah, it sounds like they're talking through water whenever they are coming towards him. And I like how he goes from being, like you said, smarmy, to concerned, to afraid, and then to like manic whenever they finally get to him and his name's Richard. I just thought about it because they are like, it's showtime, Richard. Ah, And because he, whenever he buried Ted Danson up to his head and clicked on the TV, he's like, it's showtime. So they were, it's funny because, you know, it's, it's mocking and his comeuppance feels the most deserved as far as this, um, the set of, you know, Events that we've seen unfold with the other stories so far. This one feels the most EC Tales from the Crypt. Like this is a nasty guy. He's done something nasty and now he's getting what he deserves. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's perfect to me. And
0: <laughs>
1: the, the laughter at the end, that, that manic laughter coming from Richard, uh, as, as he is so named, um, at the very end is, it, it was just delightful. I mean, like it was the, the cherry on top of everything for me. And and I will say that I did do a little reading uh, after I'd watched this just to kind of familiarize myself with, uh, you know, certain aspects of the production and and what have you. And I had read that in a sort of coincidental manner, you know, we were talking about how serious Leslie Nielsen is in this role. Uh, apparently, people on set could not stop laughing because he was just constantly funny And, and apparently he had a fart machine (laughs) (laughs) and the laughter that, that they got on camera uh, at the end of that segment was his genuine reaction to having everybody laughing on set with a fart machine. (laughs) Um, So that's just awesome. You know, when you see something like that on film and it's captured and, and uh, you know, then the film is edited and you have this scene where, you know, any, it, something is happening that is anything but uh, jocular or, uh, or lighthearted, but in reality, um, and the filming of the scene, it was, everybody was having a great time. And to me, that's, that's really cool.
0: Yeah. I always imagine that horror movies, most of the time have got to be some of the most fun things to make.
1: Yeah, they've got to be. I mean, if you, if you were, I just, I want to imagine like, uh, like the evil dead, the the remake of the evil dead with like the blood rain at the end, you know, it's like, if you're, if you're going to put yourself through something that grueling, you've got to have a good attitude and you, you got to be able to have fun with it. Cause I'm, I'm sure that filming that, like the reality of it probably really sucks.
0: <laughs> yeah. It gotta be uncomfortable and sticky, but it's just, you know, it's just gotta be a lot of fun. And even when I was, um, I used to do a lot of theater stuff in high school and in college. I always wanted to do stuff that involved makeup because I thought that was just so much fun. You know, that's why I always enjoyed Halloween because you get to become this other person. So that's just, you know, it just seems like a lot of fun to get to to let loose and and be this other character, especially when they're over the top. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: 100% One hundred percent agree. Sometimes you let the costume do the acting for you. Who said it?
0: <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know if I know that quote. Jack Nicholson,
1: in there. reference to the Joker, in 1989. And I can one hundred percent attest to that. If you you know you put on a mask, makeup, a costume, and let yourself go, that that outfit or that costume will take you places.
0: Yes, i and that makes me think of a Tim. I think Tim Burton's quote. I'm not sure if he was for. Beetlejuice or for one of the Batman movies, but I remember him saying that sometimes actors will tell them that they need to see their their wardrobe before they find their character. Maybe that was for Batman.
1: I mean, I, I don't doubt it. i've I've only dabbled in acting, so i I really I couldn't say, but um, i I write a damn fine D um, <laughs> and d campaign. we'll just we'll leave it at that. Um, so the next segment is, uh, I believe the fourth one in the film and this one, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I like it all that much, to be honest with you. Um, I do like Adrian Barbeau, um, but that's about as far as, as my appreciation for this one goes. Uh, there's just something about it that rubs me the wrong way. Uh, Fritz Weaver is great, though. He reminds me of an aged, um... oh gosh, Seth Myers from SNL. Yes. He, uh... yes. <laughs> did,
0: did you think that when you were watching this? Just a little bit, yeah. There's just been a quality to his face.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was certain facial expressions, never like, you know, dead on or anything. But he sometimes, I, I guess maybe later on in the segment when he's, you know, full on exasperated. Uh, it kind of reminded me of that and, uh, how Holbrook is awesome. I mean, there's nobody that sucks in this one outright. Um, but I was watching it with my daughter and she wasn't feeling it. So maybe I wasn't feeling it. Um, you know, kind of in response to, uh, the way that she was reacting to it. I think it was a little too drawn out for us to get what we got, because again, it's uh, it's it's like it's another revenge murder tale, right?
0: Yes, I I see what you mean. It definitely it is the longest story in the whole film, so it does feel like it it drags on a while. I think that I appreciate this one because of the creature and the creature mm-hmm. effects, and I do. I have a feeling that this one may be just a way to spotlight Tom Savini's creature work because. I believe this is the first film that he worked on where he got to do creature effects because before then he was mainly known for gore and for special effects makeup. But I think I've, if I'm remembering correctly, this is the first time that he got to actually build a physical creature. And that's the, uh, the creature's name is fluffy, uh, I guess outside of Canon, but you know, in the crate and, Mm That's what I always remember about this one, and the colors of blue and red whenever it shows up at the end. So, yes, it's not my favorite one, but I I always appreciate the look of that creature.
1: Yeah, and and it is scary the first time you see it. I mean, it's genuinely frightening. Uh, so the the premise of, of this one is pretty straightforward too. You have these these two college professors. Um, Adrian Barbeau plays uh, the wife of of Hal Hal. Hal Holbrook, excuse me. And, uh, you know, she's she's not a very fun person. Um, like I said at the beginning of this, I, you know, I adore Adrienne Barbeau, but that character just straight up sucks. Uh, and, you know, she's just this really sort of demeaning and abusive uh, drunk. Um, and her husband takes the brunt of all of that. And uh, nobody likes to be around her. And it's just, it's not fun. So uh, you inject this, this crate that uh, a custodian finds, um, on the college that's currently deserted. Uh, I think they're between between semesters mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the uh, custodian calls, um, Fritz Weaver down to, to check it out. And it's, it's labeled as a uh, Arctic expedition, I think from the eighteen hundred, like the late 1800s, which is just weird. Uh, and they, you know, they crack it open, and there's this thing inside of it. And um, one of the the interesting things to me about this is that uh, the the professor uh, Fritz Weaver, uh, what was it, Dexter Dexter Stanley, his yes. character's name. I I was a custodian at the University of Georgia for almost ten years, and um, you know I. I will say that a lot of people don't necessarily respect that position. Mm -hmm. Um, but I always found that there were a few professors or student teachers who didn't really care that that's what I was doing for a living. And, you know, we became fast friends, um, on campus and, uh, and that just, the, the character of, of, uh, the Fritz Weber plays reminded me of that because when he is opening this crate, um, with the custodian, um, he, you know, he hands him the crowbar and he's like, Oh, you go ahead and open it. He's like, no, uh, be my guest. It's your find. I insist. And that was to me, it was such a, a you know, kind of show of respect and being a genuinely nice person that, uh, it, it reminded me of that. And I was like, Hey, you know, that guy's all right. You know, he, uh, is giving him the, the means to to his own demise, unfortunately. <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that is the irony. Um, so, yeah, he he calls his pal, uh, Hal Holbrook, you know, he's, he's got to get him down there to, uh, to help him sort this whole thing out. And to me, what's funny about this segment and one of one of its strengths, I think, is the way that uh, Hal Holbrook's character, like he hears him and he's acknowledging it but it kind of stops at one point and his wheels start turning. He's like, no, no, wait, wait. This is an opportunity.
0: Yeah, he has these de- these <laughs> murderous fantasies. Um, I think it may just be one. I almost thought... I, maybe he has one more whenever he's at home with uh, with Billy. I, I think her name's Wilma, Adrian Barbeau in the film, but she's like, yeah. oh, just, tell, you know, just call me Billy, everyone does. So that's like her thing. And I know he... Imagines himself shooting her at the party they're at earlier, and I think he imagines himself choking her either with his bare hands or with a phone cord later when they're in the kitchen, and he she's just berating him because he's kind of like you know daydreaming. So you're right; it is funny that he's heard this like not only horrific news but also most unbelievable. But he's like, "How can I use this? Is my chance?" to rid myself of billy by letting this creature <laughs> i have no idea about you know attack and devour her
1: yes he he doesn't even have a solid plan he's just i guess his desperation is such that <laughs> that that is immediately where his mind goes to not not oh i hope my friend is okay this is an outlandish and bizarre situation it's just like no this is outlandish and bizarre maybe that's perfect
0: <laughs> I advantage. <laughs> so um, so
1: yeah I mean that's that's essentially the point of this particular segment. He he lures her down there uh, under false pretense. basically um, you know he, he blames his friend uh, for for being uh, lascivious and you know having uh, this relationship with this girl and he apparently did something which I think is funny because he knew exactly what to say to get her to come down there. Um, you know, which speaks ill of her character, which by the way, I don't know if it's just me, but is a station wagon for an older couple with no children. Does that just seem like weird to you? Um, I don't know which is weirder that, or the fact that she just straight up brings her a glass of, uh, spiked milk or eggnog or whatever.
0: (laughs) I, that is what like tripped me up was the milk. I didn't even think about the station wagon. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, she just like casually saunters down to to the car and is uh, she's going to bring that drink with her while she drives. Uh, so she's she's dedicated to that premise.
0: <laughs> hey, these were these were earlier times, <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? 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 Um, yeah, I guess you could get away with that kind of thing. It's so funny because like the severity of it was not lessened by any degree. It's just sort of like our reaction to uh, what's acceptable and what isn't, or or recognizing that, hey, maybe you shouldn't get super fucked up and drive <laughs> around at night, or or any time of the day, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's that's what ha- that's what happens. She gets down there, and there's a false start. He tries to wake this critter up, and it doesn't seem to to want to do that until the last minute, of course, uh, where she's snatched up and and devoured. Now they do make a point of illustrating or mentioning that there are no remains, right? I mean, you'd think if a creature was consuming another human being, that would be some like tissue or, or bone or something like that, but it just kind of gobbles it all up.
0: Yeah, that was kind of strange. Just, especially if you see the uh, full creature, um, you don't see it on film outside of the crate, but I've seen some models of it and it does look quite like a, uh, a primate like its lower body is kind of small so i don't think it could really eat all that much but it's interesting to think that it's been in this crate for you know possibly 200 years or a little bit less than that and it's uh you know what was it eating then it's just living off of what it ate before it's just uh it can just keep consuming and consuming so it's, yeah. it's definitely it's a strange thought i guess it just is there to make it seem even more disturbing
1: yeah. And it, it, works. Don't get me wrong. It does. Um, I do think however, that it is, it's one of the things that leads me to feel like this is maybe my least favorite one. Um, simply because there are so many just odd things about it that don't necessarily make sense, even in the context of, of, uh, you know, like a, a pulp comic, uh, you know, or a horror comic, um, and then the ending i don't like unfortunately and i'm not trying to tear this apart um it's just if i have to pick one that i that i like least it would it would be this one um you know at the end where they're they're playing chess together which i thought was a nice touch um and they're discussing how they're going to move forward after these events and you know they're discussing like well what if you know, I call the cops, what's going to happen with this, you know, um, can I trust you essentially? And uh, one of the last questions is, well, what if it gets out and you know how Holbrook's like, Oh, you know, you should have seen where I put it. It's, you know, in this quarry, it'll never happen. I think we should have left it right there. Um, But of course the end of the segment is going back to the quarry and down into the water and the chains break and you see the creature again. I mean, I, I definitely get it, but I think it would have maybe been more interesting if if we wouldn't have been deliberately told that yes, that is actually what happened.
0: Yeah, that's true. I guess they were really, you know, they are kind of going for that that whole EC comics like twist ending there. So they had to end with that shot of the uh the creature's eyes. Like they were yeah. they were really staring up. It wasn't a I guess a realistic shot. It was almost like they were superimposed over the water, like right where the, the chains and the wood broke. I guess it's like, Oh, you know, it's, it's broken out now. So it's going to get loose and keep eating people. I think that was what they, why they did that. It was just that, that twist, but I agree. It's, it's, um, it's length. I think definitely hurts it as far as maybe just plodding along a little too long. Like you could probably cut to the chase a little bit quicker, yeah, um, but I don't think it's my least favorite. It's probably it's one of the weaker ones, this one and, and Father's Day, if you had to look at all the stories together. So have we discussed your least favorite one yet? Um, It's hard to say because I like all of them so much. It, it could be this one, because I will say that usually when I'm watching this movie, this is when things kind of slow down.
1: Mm, yeah, definitely. And And again, it's. You know, it's not a complaint so much as it is just a minor stylistic thing that I may have done differently if, you know, uh, they would have been like, hey, Grayson, you want to, you know, direct this picture? And I would have been like, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Um, um, I think that's it. It's pacing because the other ones are so, you know, they're quick and they get to it. And it's like it's like I said earlier with anthologies, it's um, more easily digested stories because you can just kind of you know jump into it but this the pacing of it it does feel like it slows it down quite a bit yeah and
1: and also i will end this by saying that i would never at any point uh i I never at any point meant to imply and i hope that no one inferred that i would give romero the business uh for anything
0: at all oh no Uh -uh. he's a he's a a national treasure so no and it's okay we can always there's always movies we love even though we saw as kids that we can, we can look back on now and, and see their flaws. So I think it's always fun to talk about that. He probably uh, knew his own flaws in his films as, as he looked back on them. So no,
1: the, the crate ends and uh, we begin the, uh, the, is it the last segment? I think they're creeping up on you. Now this one, uh, gosh this one uh, this one really unnerves me uh, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Um, the main character um, that that we're focusing on in in this episode is just uh, another horrible individual who at this point in time is very reminiscent, I suppose you could say of some of the people that uh, that uh, are are giving American citizens a, a, a rather hard time, um, and uh, you know I don't want to make any bones about it. I'm I'm really referring to uh, the super rich and um, those who more or less own hardworking individuals. It's uh, <laughs> in in blue collared, uh, almost indentured servitude. Um, so what is this guy? Is he a, is he a landlord?
0: I, hmm. He seems to be, he seems to own different businesses and I think he owns the penthouse. Like, I don't know if it's a hotel or apartments that he is, he's living on like the top floor. Mm-hmm. That's his like area. I think he, he owns that building as well as, and it's Upston Pratt. Cause I know cause he, he says his own name over that speaker, right. you know, letting them know who he is and why he's so important. But he he has this little looks like a little stock exchange, like receipt printer going on and his his very bizarre penthouse, which is super, super modern and minimalist. And he's a, he's a germaphobe. I feel like he is he's this kind of analogy for Howard Hughes Mm-hmm. but germaphobe and he's just this miserly Ebenezer Scrooge like character. Um, but yes, I think that's maybe he is, a uh, he owns different apartment buildings, like a landlord or something.
1: Yeah. He, I mean, he's definitely a businessman uh, of some kind. And this was, um, this was one of the ones where I, I was a little distracted at the time. Um, I, I, I think that uh, at the beginning of this one, my daughter had begun to lose a little bit of patience, Uh, but she snapped back to it pretty quick once this one got a little bit more wacky. Um, So, yeah, we'll we'll just say that he's he's a businessman. And as he's, you know, puttering around this crazy penthouse that I I guess it's supposed to be like uh, hermetically sealed and nothing can get in or out as far as like germ transmission or. Or whatever um but yeah he's and he's like constantly getting these phone calls from people complaining about how he's ruined their ruined their life essentially um and uh i would i would point out too that this is the segment and i think it's the only segment um that drops the f-bomb and he does so very liberally um which i think was weird considering there really wasn't that much uh in the way of cursing and what have you in the previous segments um but this guy he 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 just lets him fly so he's got these these bugs that are creeping in to the penthouse and he's got this little can of spray that he's trying to spray them individually with and it's fascinating to me because uh, I'm in pest management now. That's what I do for a living. And I'm just watching this. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's that's not remotely accurate. That's not how that would work. Uh, those are paradomestic roaches. You you know you would be looking for a completely different type of condition conducive to that sort of infestation, et cetera. But then I was like, wait a minute, it's a movie. Uh, stop. <laughs> um, but yeah, so just not a, not a nice guy. Now I will say that maybe you shouldn't go too far picking these stories apart, you know, um, you know, looking for allegory or, or meaning quote unquote. But to me, this seems like one that um, there seems to be a lot of symbolism in this segment. Uh, what, what do you think about what's going on here?
0: Um, You know, I think it really is just about, he's very much like Leslie Nielsen's character where I mean, he is getting what he deserves, but I think it's this maybe not so much body horror. Cause they did that with Jordy Verrill, but I think it's just like him being so paranoid and he definitely has a fear of the roaches of bugs in general. Mm-hmm. And he says later on, like, you know, he, he was, he grew up in like the projects and in the slums. So he knows how to deal with bugs and it's like this this thing that's just like he hates them and he's just constantly like trying to get rid of them. But it's, it's very interesting because sometimes it seems like they're not there and maybe this is just like his own paranoia getting to him. Uh, obviously by the end something physically does happen to him, but you know while he is uh, receiving these calls from the people it seems like more things are going wrong in the building i know there's a power outage and mm-hmm. it's flickering and then there's it seems like there's more bugs all of a sudden and they're like all over him and then all of a sudden the lights come back on and they're all gone and it's like he's being tormented and haunted by these bugs so it is very interesting i I, I am assuming something supernatural is happening by the end, but for a while there, it really does seem like it's all in, in his head.
1: Yeah, and and that's exactly what I mean, actually, um, is that this seems to be a little bit more symbolic um, and, and for all the reasons that you just mentioned, actually, how we can possibly say or observe that the roaches were never actually there. Um, the reason I thought that Uh, Because I didn't think this initially, even, you know, watching this now as a, I guess, more of a matured adult. I don't know if I'm Mm -hmm. qualified to say that. Um, But watching it this time when he puts himself in the panic room because the bugs are just becoming too overwhelming. um, And you, you, you know, he dies in that room. And uh, at the end, you see all of those roaches burst out of his body, which was just disgusting. <laughs> um, but it, uh, to me, it kind of suggests that the problem was inside of him, um, and I, I, I feel like maybe that's what's being conveyed there. Because if you, I mean, if you're looking at this, you know that physically, there's no way a person can expire and then that many roaches are just going to burst out of them. You know, it's just, it's impossible. So as you said, it's, you know, they're, they're very well, maybe uh, you know, something supernatural at play. But again, if we're looking at this in terms of a film or in a comic book, then, you know, we are looking at uh, we are looking at symbols and uh, in these moving pictures. And I, to me, that's what I got out of it. So I don't know if I'm projecting my own psychology onto this character in this segment, or if that's what uh, they were trying to convey. But this one's very interesting because it's very straightforward. Um, There aren't very many twists and turns in it. You just have this horrible, horrible guy Mm. who uh, ruins people's lives for profit. And then his, his, his pristine kingdom is overrun by roaches. And eventually it's what kills him.
0: Yeah. This is actually one of my favorites. I don't know why. It's just like you said, it's very straightforward. It's actually one that my wife would not watch for for years um, just because of the roaches thing. Just, she said it really creeped her out to watch it. But I don't know. Something about it is I always just really liked it. And I really like the music. The sound going along with it sounds like the roaches moving a little bit. And it seems like the more when things kind of get out of hand, the more frenetic the music becomes. And it's like, you can see the roaches kind of moving all over, but yeah, he really is just such a miserable prick that you, you, you feel better by the end whenever he gets what's coming to him. Yeah. And the, the way that you, he
1: has this interaction with, uh, I guess the caretaker of that building. Um, mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's very surreal and almost dreamlike. Um, and the way that this caretaker speaks to him, and and you can tell that he's being condescending as well. Uh, oh, yes. that he's totally had it with this guy. Um, you know, especially when he makes the racial comments that he does, which I had forgotten about like completely. <laughs> yeah. And when I was watching this, I was like, oh, dude, <laughs> like you, you really suck. Um, so yeah, just horrible guy, but it had like this very, Dreamlike, almost nightmarish quality to it, uh, his interactions with with other people. And again, that caretaker is the only one that we see on screen um, at any time. And the way that that shot, his interactions with him through that peephole where his his face is magnified, mm-hmm. again, y- it kind of lends uh, to a um, a very surreal um, quality or or atmosphere. That uh, that's taking place, and I think it's it, it's not my favorite segment by any stretch, but again, um, I would say that it's one of the more well composed segments.
0: Yeah, it even I was even thinking it. It almost makes you feel like he might be in a uh, in a in an asylum because that the caretaker or the maintenance guy, you know, that's running around the building and he's trying to get a hold of him. When he does speak to him. Through that uh, peephole, it does seem very condescending. It's almost like he's just um, placating him and being like, oh, no, Mr. Pratt, you know, everything's fine. I'll take care of it and all this stuff. And it's almost like, you know, Upston Pratt is like a maybe in a a patient or something like that. And that's why he's he never leaves that room. And he just comes by the caretaker does and, uh, you know, just says something to make him feel better. There's uh, you kind of get that sense sometimes, too. Wow. Actually, that, no, that's
1: really cool. I like that. I did not think of that at all. Um, But, you know, that is kind of, and I'm, you know, far from a medical uh, expert or even knowledgeable um, in that field, hardly. Um, But I can tell you just, you know, from things that I've read and then let's just say that it's a trope that you usually see played out, um, in, in movies and TV. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that and say that the, the trope of the mental patient who sees bugs, um, is something that, uh, at least when I was growing up, that's something I heard really frequently. Yes.
0: Um,
1: was that, that was, uh, one of the symptoms of, of certain psychoses was, was the seeing of bugs on the flesh. And then of course, Hellraiser two, there was that that's burned into my brain forever. <laughs> um, so yeah, you you might actually really be onto something there. That's a very fascinating way to look at that. That's cool, man.
0: Yep, and I I will say the the other story that I remember as far as the uh, special features go was for this segment and the fact that they had to get cockroaches shipped in from uh somewhere in South America. I think George Ramirez said they were like in these They came from these caves, like these people went and got them out of the caves and had them in these containers, shipped them there to uh, where they were filming. And I think they may have filmed that in New York because he said that when they were done, they Mm -hmm. just like let them loose. And he said that it was a specific kind of cockroach that was not native to there. And it's it is there now. You know, they, they he said they multiplied, you know, or reproduced quite a bit why they had them on set he said there was all of a sudden more of them he's like well when we're done we didn't know what else to do with them so we just <laughs> turned them loose Oh no! Like, so now they're part of the ecosystem there
1: as someone who deals with that sort of thing professionally that, that hurts my heart so much <laughs> <laughs> oh man that is that is rough um And you know, I was actually looking to see if I could identify the roaches that they were using, and and they used several species. Yes. um, In that scene, I mean, you've got uh, a couple American—I say a couple. Christ, there are like thousands uh, American cockroaches, Australian roaches, um, and that seemed to be the the makeup predominantly. But then there were some larger species that I'm not familiar with. Uh, that I don't deal with on a regular basis. Thank God. But, <laughs> yeah, they
0: look like these Madagascar hissing cockroaches. Yes, or something like that. They're, they're very big, fat ones. They're um, I, I actually got to hold one at a Discovery Place in Charlotte. They had this special thing for Halloween. It was called Science on the Rocks. And, you, you know, they had alcoholic beverages and stuff there. But you, you could go through the whole place. There were no kids. And they had different stuff going on. This lady was like, hey, do you want to hold this? And I, I swear to you, it it didn't feel like a bug anymore. It was so big. It it felt heavy in my hand. It was very slow. It was kind of plodding along. Like It didn't gross me out like a skittering yeah. light a flying cockroach. It was like, it was like a little uh, frog or something. It was like, I guess I just accepted it as a different creature than a roach. Yeah. It's weird how your
1: mind does that because I'm the exact same way. If it's big and like, I can kind of perceive you as uh, a a larger creature or something of, of substance, um, (laughs) tangible, even I'm like, okay, because I'm definitely afraid of spiders, but tarantulas do not bother me at all. Um, so, yeah, it's weird that you say that because I, I feel very similarly. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right, though. Madagascar hissing cockroach, I believe, is exactly what that is. I will say, though, that doing or being in pest management, um, I've seen some very disgusting things. And that's one of the reasons, actually, I like that segment because it uh, it just felt so familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> And, and roaches do move like a river if there are enough of them. And you say that you overturn a hollow uh, somewhere, uh, especially when you're dealing with a plumbing situation. Dude, it's so gross. Like, it's so gross. But the worst thing ever is uh, doing, like, a deep clean-out of a restaurant or something that's oh, yeah. heavily infested with German cockroaches. Oof. Yeah. raining down from the ceilings and the walls. It's, it's nasty. You get back in the truck and they're like crawling out of your shirt. No good.
0: My dad's an electrician and I used to do jobs with him all the time growing up. And um, I actually remember crawling under people's houses. And my least favorite bug, like spiders do not bother me. I will actually, uh, I'll save them if they're in the house. If, I've only seen a black widow a couple of times in my life. So those I'll kill automatically just, just to be safe. But I'll usually save spiders in the house under a cup and stuff and get them out. But, um, camel crickets are just something I despise. I don't know if you've ever seen them before, but they, Oh, yeah. uh, oh they, they are always under people's houses and they were in my basement when I was growing up and just hate them. They, uh, cause when they jump, they jump at you. It's not like they're jumping away. Uh, they're, they just really seem like stupid creatures, but they really skeeved me out. I I hated when everyone would like jump at me or jump on me and touch me. It just was like, ugh. yeah, it just gives you like a terrible feeling. They look
1: bizarre. I mean, they they really do. And to folks listening, if you've never seen uh, a camel cricket or camelback cricket, look it up. Um, it's, it's, it's terrifying on a whole other level. Now it's, it's funny you say that though, because that is one of the first instances of terror I ever felt, um, as a young person, uh, regarding insects. My, my grandparents' barn where they kept all the big freezers, um, was infested with camelback crickets. And I hated going in there because they were all over the walls and once upon a time, I went in there to get something, and my uncle uh, came up behind real fast and closed the door. So, like, I was just stuck in there in the dark with all of these Camelback Crickets jumping around and hitting me, and it was, it was awful.
0: Uncles are sadistic because <laughs> I, I, my uncle, were, okay, so in my grandparents' house, they have a well outside of their house, and they have a statue of a little boy sitting on the edge of the well like he's just sitting there and um, his paint was very cracked so he looked uh, I, he looked unpleasant to me uh, and I told my dad that like he scared me but we came up with stories about him we, my dad said his name was Henry so we would talk about him all the time and one night when I was over there for dinner I was talking to my dad about it at the table and my uncle overheard and he's like you're scared of that thing and we were talking about it for a while well, when we got ready to leave my uncle like grabbed me and he drugged me over there. This is like in the middle of the night and everybody was outside and they were just laughing at me. But he drugged me over there and he made me uh pat the little boy statue on the head. He knew I was terrified oh, of. Him. No, I was like, gosh, why did like why did he do that? But it's funny to think that I was scared of it. Now I'm sure it was funny to them. Uh, but yeah, that did remind me of that. Yes.
1: Uncles are, they're just the greatest and the worst. They're like making (laughs) child abuse fun again. (laughs) I think if you, uh, I was always the oldest kid. So for me, uh, my uncle was kind of like, the big brother that i didn't have so that was like that was my penance for being such an unholy terror to my younger siblings (laughs) um was that he would you know exact all of these things onto me but you know looking back it's 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 a good laugh it's it was childhood trauma but you know it's a laugh
0: yeah it gave you these experiences so you could talk about them later (laughs) exactly
1: um but yeah man that is uh that that's the last tale in the uh, in
0: creep show. Yes, and um you got to talk about the the end of the wraparound with uh, Tom Atkins and, and little Joe King cuz that yes. part terrified me as a kid. That this was to me like the scariest part of the whole movie.
1: Yes, the closing segment. Yeah, um we have I guess Tom Savini is a uh, he's a garbage dude mm-hmm. uh, which is always cool. I love it when Tom Savini pops up in films. Um, and they're collecting garbage and they find the, uh, the creep show comic and they're thumbing through. And I love the way that those two guys interact with each other. It's just, it's so natural. And if you've ever worked with any human being ever, it, you you know, that it's, it's genuine and you know, they're looking at these ads that you, that you had mentioned, you know, like the, the muscles fast and x-ray specs. And I love how dismissive Tom Savini is (laughs) all the gimmicks in the comic. Um, But then there's the voodoo doll, and uh, he points out, that's like, oh, no, we can't, because somebody's already sent for it. And then, of course, it was the child at the beginning, Billy, who had uh, sent for the voodoo doll, uh, which he then uses for revenge.
0: Yes, it is. uh, I don't know why it was so scary to me as a kid. I guess because Billy seems so demonic and scary all of a sudden, and he's like, you know tom atkins is downstairs and the little boys start stabbing a needle into the doll and then like tom atkins like grabs his neck and all that stuff and it looks like he's choking but he just the kid just keeps stabbing the doll all all, over and over again he's like ready for another shot dad and i don't know just the he scared me as a kid i was just like i think that may have been my first um introduction to even an, an idea of a voodoo doll and what it was. So that that idea really scared me. But the fact that he was doing that to his dad, I think, seemed especially frightening to me. Oh, yeah, that kid took a turn. He
1: he went from being a cute kid who was getting a stern dressing down to, uh, to kind of um, malicious. But yes. I also kind of get the sense that his dad was um, regularly hard on him and, and probably abusive straight up. Yeah. So, you know, looking at it in that light, uh, I don't really feel bad for the guy.
0: (laughs) No, no. I think it was just the concept that really scared me as a kid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you see children, uh, you know, especially if you are, you yourself are a child and, and they're doing something devious or, you know, against the rules or something that you know is, is bad. I mean, you don't really have the context, um, or you don't have all the information, I guess, when you're that age to, to, you know, be able to, to make judgment calls. So yeah, it is, it is frightening. I remember, um, you know, looking back on this now, it's, it's kind of silly, but when The Good Son came out with Elijah Wood and, and Macaulay Culkin, that disturbed me a lot when I was a kid. Um, cause I knew that that was just, it wasn't right, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, so that can, you're absolutely right. That can be unsettling. Uh, any closing thoughts that you would like to share about this one?
0: I don't know. I think we've covered everything. It's just a, it's a really great classic 80s horror movie and one of the best horror anthology movies out there because there's been plenty of examples where people have gone wrong as far as trying to make a good anthology but this one takes the cake and it um it i don't think it's been replicated so far as uh the getting the flavor of the ec horror comic vibe. like you said trick-or-treat is fantastic that's probably one of the uh that and like we were talking about earlier tales from the hood those are really good later horror anthologies but i haven't seen anything quite capture that horror comic feel even surprisingly um the tales from the crypt films which i think was it's kind of funny that they never did that themselves you know creating a film that was an anthology based off the series but um yeah yeah, that's a
1: whole other discussion though the uh the tales from the crypt films yeah. <laughs> There's a lot a lot going on there. A lot of moving parts. Um, I couldn't recommend this movie strongly enough for horror fans and uh and, and people that love Halloween and the Halloween season. It's just it's wonderful. So don't make my mistake. Don't don't be like me. Go out, <laughs> watch it, watch it repeatedly, buy it in every format that you can. It's well worth your time. Uh well, Zach, I gotta say, man, I am thrilled that we were able to do this and i just want to thank you sincerely for uh for taking time you know setting setting uh, a couple hours out of your night and and talking this awesome flick with me
0: yeah you're very welcome and uh thanks for inviting me to do it any anytime you want to talk about some uh some scary movies or you know anything batman related i uh, that's where most of my knowledge lies <laughs> Yes. Well,
1: I think we had discussed that, and I, I still think that Tales from the Hood is a good one, um, but I haven't done Batman, the 89 Batman yet either. So if there was somebody that I wanted to offer that to you or who I thought would be awesome uh, to have on to talk about, you are you're that person, and you're more than welcome.
0: We'll set up a time and we'll do it.
1: All right. Well, uh, again, thank you so much, and uh, you have yourself a great night, and and a uh, happy Halloween.
0: Thanks, you too.
1: Bye. Thanks again to Zach for being on the show and helping to make this such a fun Halloween episode. Y'all, do not forget to check out his supremely badass artwork on Instagram. And again, that's at Zachary Jackson Brown. It's so fucking good, y'all. Okay, so we've only got two more full episodes this year and I've decided that they will be horror-themed. Feel free to shout out your suggestions to me on either Instagram or Facebook, and I just might pick them. Anyways. Once more, I've been your host, Grayson Parker Moncott. Thank you for listening to the Sleeping Giant Podcast, and until next time, y'all.